You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with us now. Continuing to make our way through the Old Testament and currently in the book of Deuteronomy. It's uh, not only a day that kids go and get candy and, and all that stuff, but uh, it's actually the um, what you know you might call the Reformation Day, the uh, day that Martin Luther hung his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Chapel, um, you know, 500 years ago or whatever. So that's kind of cool. Joke is that he had to hang them on the door because they didn't they didn't want to open it up and give him candy, I guess. So. Um, <laughs> So anyway, um, we are in Deuteronomy, and if you remember, um, the children of Israel are, are now uh, in the second generation. The old uh, first generation has passed away, and, and they've all died in the wilderness, and now they're, they're right up there uh, at the river. They're ready to cross, and Moses is not going to be able to bring them in. Joshua, the new leader, is being raised up to bring the, the new generation into the promised land. And, and in light of the fact that it's a new generation, they need to be reminded of the law and of the promises of God and of the standards and principles that God had placed over them. And so the Deuteronomy is really a reminder. It's a re-giving of the law. And not just a rehashing, but it is an expansion and an enhancement of the law for this particular generation. And it's good for us to be reminded and, and to go over things. And the Lord does that with us. Uh, as Paul says in Philippians, it's not tedious for us. It is safe to be reminded of things. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we really find the Ten Commandments reviewed and they're gone over again. And it never hurts to read and to study and to be reminded of the Ten Commandments, because they are God's moral law for us. And we know scripturally from the New Testament that we can't keep the law. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The law was there to magnify our sin, but it's only Jesus that can justify the sinner. And so the law is really there to show us that we're dirty and rotten and filthy and that we need a Savior. That's what the law was for. The law was never placed for us to keep it. God knew that we would never be able to keep the entirety of the law. But it is a moral standard for us to live by. And if we lived and abided by these principles and these truths, our society, our culture would be a completely different place. In verses 1 through 5, we really see the setting of this covenant, this moral law that is going to be given. And remember, this is a, a review of it. This happened back in Exodus chapter 20 as they're there at the base of Mount Sinai. You remember Moses was brought to the top of Mount Sinai. And, and it was there that he was given this law. And it says in verse 1, And Moses called all Israel... And he said to them, Hear, O Israel, which is a, a very uh, common phrase in Deuteronomy because Moses is preaching. This book is really a series of five sermons. And Moses is saying, listen, hear. In Revelation, it tells us that 
We need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We need to have ears to hear. It's important that we are in tune with what God is saying. And the Lord would say to us, Hear, O church, here's what I want to say to you. The statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. And so what Moses is telling the people is, look, the Word of God is important. And you need to hear it, you need to learn it, you need to know it, and then you need to do it. As James tells us, not only should we be a hearer of the Word, that's important. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So hearing is an important thing. But then we need to put it into action. And I think it's very easy for us as Christians, as Bible-believing uh, people that go to a church that teaches the Bible to just sort of come and, and hear the Word of God and to grow callous to the truth of the Word of God, thinking maybe even that we're putting it into practice, but in reality not putting it into practice. And he says we need to be careful to observe these things. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive. And so what he's saying is, look, the covenant was made with the first generation, but they're all dead now, and God has made this covenant with us as well. And it's so true as believers. The Word of God is, is an ancient book. Millions upon millions of people have read the same text that we have, and it applied to them. But they're dead, and now we're alive, and God is saying, look, I'm renewing that covenant with you. Not worried about people that lived a hundred years ago. I'm concentrated and I'm focused upon what you're going to do with my word. I'm taking the timeless truths of the Bible and applying them in timely events that are relevant with us presently. He says, The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now we know that God didn't literally speak with them face to face because it tells us in the, just the previous chapter here in Deuteronomy that they didn't see God, but they heard His voice. And so we know that this phrase face to face is a figure of speech. It speaks of the fact that they communed with God, that they heard His voice, that there was an intimacy, a closeness, the same kind of intimacy and closeness and communion that God wants to have with us today. And we don't need to see Him to have that. And we can still speak with Him face to face. And I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. And this is what God said. The children of Israel told Moses, look, we're afraid. And obviously you've got something special going on with God, so why don't you go ahead and go listen for us and, and take what you hear and bring it back to us. And so Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and this is what God said. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so before God gives them any law, before He gives them any requirement, before He establishes this covenant with them, He wants them to know a few things. First of all, who He is. Before God tells us to do anything, He wants us to know who He is. I am the Lord your God. Which is why Jesus took on human flesh. It's why He became a man. So that John the Apostle could write and say, Man, we touched Him, and we beheld Him, and we saw Him, and we had relationship with Him. Before God says of 
anything for you to do. He says, I want you to know who I am. I want you to have relationship with me. And in order to have relationship, you need to understand who I am. I am the Lord your God. I am your master. I am your creator who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So not only does he want them to know who he is, but he wants them to know what he did. And again, before God says anything to us in terms of requirements, before God says anything to us of what he wants from us, he always tells us first who he is and then what he's done for us. We get that backwards a lot. And we begin to to talk about all the things that God wants us to do and we forget what He's done for us. And we put the cart before the horse. He says, I want you to know what I've done for you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now this exodus, you guys, is a great illustration of redemption. This exodus where God rescued the children of Israel from slavery, from bondage, from tyranny. And He delivered them out of that with what with blood the blood of lambs that were applied to the doorpost you know the story the passover and those that didn't apply the blood on the doorpost in the shape of a cross consequently they were stricken dead and so only those that applied the blood were part of the exodus and it's a beautiful picture of redemption in that Jesus is our passover lamb and unless we apply and appropriate His blood, then we are subject to the wrath of God. But when we do apply His blood, we are redeemed and we're rescued and we're freed from the house of bondage. And that's what you were living in before you knew Jesus. That's what you are living in if you don't know Jesus, is bondage. And often people will say, well, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. I don't know if I want to follow Jesus because... I mean, I like my freedom. I like being able to do what I want. And that's a complete lie of the devil. Because you have no freedom apart from Christ. You are in bondage to your flesh. It might feel like freedom, but in reality it's bondage. You're in bondage to your sin, to your nature, to your flesh. It has you shackled. And God says, I've rescued you from that. I want you to know that. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what I've done. And I hope that you guys and that we are reminding ourselves of that on a daily basis. Of the God that we serve and what He did for us. We can rejoice in that. We can worship in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our tragedies, in the midst of terrible times. We can rejoice in the fact of who God is and what He's done for us. Do you realize that never changes? In the midst of so many things that change in this life. We can rejoice in who God is and what He did for us. That never changes. We'll never wake up and find out that God died or that the cross was a hoax. It never changes. It's always the same. His blood is always available. Redemption is always there for us. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that is so important. Verse 6. And then He begins with the first commandment in verse 7. The first commandment. It is not only the first commandment, but it is the first commandment. It's the most important commandment. It is the commandment of all other commandments. Because he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's something that we have to have right. Otherwise, nothing else will be right in our life. Now, 
I think sometimes we think this means, well, as long as Jesus is number one, then that's okay. I can have other gods just as long as there's no other gods before Him. Now, this word before might be a poor translation. Really what it means is there should be no other gods beside the Lord. No other gods at all. That He's the only God. There's no idols in our life. And idolatry in this culture is a lot different than idolatry in our culture, but they're one and the same. And we may not worship little figurines, and we may not have names for them like Baal or Ashtoreth, and we may not put our babies on altars and sacrifice them to fertility gods, but we have idols nonetheless. We have idols that permeate our culture. We have, of course, I think, the number one idol, the God of money, which dominates this culture. We have the God of sex. We have the God of power. We have the God of intellect. And all of these gods can creep into our life and can crowd out the one and true God. And it's a daily responsibility for us to make sure that there's no other gods before Him. There's no other gods beside Him. Not only is that He's number one, but that He's the only one. There's no rival throne whatsoever in our life. I think we have to to daily take inventory and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that is an idol? Is there anything that is rivaling you, that's consuming me and my thoughts and my passions, that's captured my heart? So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment's found there starting in verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so the basic idea here is that we should not make any carved or graven image for worship. Now this is not at all putting a stop to art or saying that we can't make any kind of uh, paintings or pictures. This is not prohibiting that kind of activity, that kind of expression. What this is prohibiting is that we would have art and graven images and pictures for an aid in worship. In other words, that we need a picture of Jesus in order to worship Jesus. And that's why uh, we don't have a lot of pictures of, uh, or any pictures of Jesus, you know, around here. We, we don't um, have, you know, icons and those kinds of things because I think the Bible's very clear that we don't need those things and we shouldn't have those things to aid us in worship. Anything that we create is always just miserably short of what, of who God is and what He wants for us to see Him as. Even the cross. And when, when you think about the cross and you see the cross, it doesn't tell you of the agony and the suffering and the wrath of God and the becoming of sin that Jesus took upon the cross. You cannot capture that in a piece of wood cut in the shape of a cross. You just can't. You can't capture the fact that Jesus is no longer on the cross. In fact, He is resurrected and He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. None of that stuff can be captured in the picture, in the image 
of a cross. And so we have to be careful that we aren't needing these kinds of visual stimulation to aid us in worship. God prohibits that. He says in verse 11, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so the third commandment is pretty simple. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. We can break this commandment in a variety of ways. Through profanity, using the name of God in blasphemy, that is saying things about God that are not true of Him, or ascribing things to Him that He's never done or said, adding to the Word of God, or cursing God. It can also be in using the name of God in a superficial or stupid way. Just using the name of God flippantly. Or it can be in claiming the name of God, saying that you're a follower of Jesus, when your life demonstrates just the opposite of that. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm a Christian, and yet your life is nothing like Jesus, and, and that disgraces Him. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so there's a, a variety of ways that we can do that. And we have to be guarding ourselves that we're not doing that, that we're not using God's name in vain, that we're not saying, well, um, the Lord said this and this, or I have a word from the Lord, or God told me to do this, and then a day later uh, you, you've changed your mind and you're doing something else. You have to be very careful that you're not saying that God said something when in fact you have no clue what you're talking about. And, and we all uh, are guilty of that, and we have to be careful of that. Just say, you know, this is what I, I kind of feel like the Lord's doing. I, I have no idea, but not putting God's name on it as a stamp of approval and then hours later deciding, well, it really wasn't the Lord. Uh, that, that's vanity. Jesus taught us uh, to hallow the name of God. You know, the disciples said, teach us to pray. And he said, um, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. And so we need to be aware of that. He will not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. And so God takes that seriously. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy or set apart. And the Sabbath, of course, was Saturday. It was the, the seventh day. They, they really went from Sunday to Saturday as their week. We, we kind of go from, from Monday to Sunday, but they, they began their week on Sunday. That was the first day of the week. And we gather for corporate worship on Sunday and not Saturday because the early church did. You read the book of Acts. The early church gathered on the first day of the week. We also know that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. And so it kind of makes sense. And there's groups. They love the Lord. I think they're a little wacky sometimes. But that, you know, just really, I mean, it's all about Saturday. It's all about the Sabbath. And if you're not worshiping on Saturday, some of them will even say that's uh, akin to taking the mark of the beast. I mean, it gets way out there. They're not all that way, but it can get really legalistic. It's interesting that of all the Ten Commandments, this, the fourth, is the only one not repeated in the New Testament because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Even a cursory study of the book of Hebrews will teach you that. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't even have, you barely need to, to read. 
you just kind of glance through Hebrews, and it's really clear that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. It has nothing to do with a day. Paul tells us in Colossians that we don't, uh, we don't have special days. And so, uh, where that comes from, uh, this, this need to worship God on a special, on a certain day, it's certainly not in the New Testament. But in this economy and in this dispensation, it was important. And he says you need to observe the Sabbath. You need to, to take that day and set it apart to meditate upon God and to take it easy and to rest. And it's interesting that the Jewish culture was the only culture that did this. This was a foreign idea to take a day off. If you think about it, in that time, there was always something to do. I mean, you didn't just go to the store and buy milk or, you know, you didn't turn on the faucet to get water or, you know, you didn't go down uh, to, the, to the meat shop to buy steak. I mean, you had to do all of that yourself. So there was always something to do. And so to take a day off was like, what? To not work? I mean, man, there's wood to chop. There's, there's uh, fences to build. There's cows to slaughter. You know, there, there's... There's lambs being born. I mean, there's always something to do. And so to take a day off was was very foreign. And it's why the children of Israel had such a hard time doing it. They never did it consistently. They were always struggling with this because there was always things to do. Does that sound familiar? Because the principle is still there for us of taking a day. I don't think it matters what day, but taking a day to rest and to hear from God. And so he says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So if you can't get your work done in six days, then hey, must not be that important. Get it done in six days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so God covered all His bases here. He's like, look, this isn't just for you, and then you can you know, have your workers do everything so that you're still making money or that you're still getting things done. No, everybody takes a day off. And I think that in in our culture, we're kind of uh, guilty of that. You know, okay, well, as a business owner, I'll I'll take the day off, but I'll have um, all of my workers continuing to work so that I can make money. And it doesn't work that way. We, We need to be... Uh, understanding that it's not only important for us, but it's important for everyone. And giving our employees or uh, those that are working for us uh, a day off. And I think it's it's very important for us, you guys, to uh, to take that day and, and to rest in the Lord. And, and I don't know uh, what day that is for you. Maybe it's Sunday. You know, maybe it's a half of one day and a half of another day. But but take a day. Take time to just hear from God and, and to meditate upon Him and to spend time with your family and to rest. God created us to need rest. 
you think about it like, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't need to sleep? I mean, we could get so much more done. And I've often pondered that. You know, like, why do we get tired? Why? I mean, God could have very easily made us where we could just keep going. Why do we get tired? Why do we need to sleep? I mean, eight hours, a third of your life is spent in your bed. It's a lot of time. You know, I've tried to kind of whittle that down. So I try to get like five or six, you know, then I can get a little bit more out of out of life, you know, but it catches up with you. And then you sleep like 10 or 12 hours, you know, one day. And But why do we need to sleep? And the only thing that, that really makes sense to me is that God knows we need a new beginning. And you think about it, you go to bed at night, and you're just weary, and things are weighing you down, and things are bothering you, and you're worried about stuff, and you wake up in the morning, and it's a new day. And it's like, okay, uh, there's there's life here. I've got hope, you know. And, and it's, it's just cool how that works. I mean, often I go to bed just sort of just worried about certain things and turmoil about something that's going on in the church or whatever. And, and I wake up and in the morning, it's like it's not a big deal. It's, it's a new day. I can handle this. And, and I think that's what we need. And we, that's why we need rest. We, we need to be refocused. And so even though the Sabbath is not a literal commandment for us as New Testament believers, the principle applies of taking rest. And Jesus is our Sabbath. And so we need to be constantly communing with Him and and resting in Him and abiding in Him, making your home in Him. He's your rest. And the fifth commandment, verse 16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God has commanded you, that your days may be long. And that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so the, the fifth commandment, one that we just studied not long ago on Sunday morning, there in Ephesians, to honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? It basically means that you obey them, that you do what they tell you to, that you submit yourself to the authority of your parents when you're living in their household, that your days may be long. There's a, a safety in a child obeying their parents is what this commandment is all about. That when society has the proper structure for the family set up, that there is safety in that. That there is a, an abundance of life in that. And whenever that is broken, and whenever that principle in a society and in a culture is destroyed which it's being destroyed in our culture as we speak. Whenever that principle of children honoring their parents, whenever that is removed, it's not long after that that a society and a culture will will be destroyed. Any person that has studied history will know that. That is that principle is removed from that culture, it will not be long after that that things are destroyed. Because everything flows out of that. And it's why it is so scary to think of this next generation who has grown up with little authority and, and what they will now be bringing into our culture and in our society. And it's not like it's never happened before. We kind of think of it like, oh man, you know, the world is coming to an end. No, this is just cyclical. We're just another culture that is committing the same mistakes. This has happened time and time again. And, and we're just repeating history. We don't learn. 
And when that happens, a culture begins to implode, destroyed from the inside. This is a super important command because everything else flows out from that in, in terms of the success of a culture and of a society. If kids aren't raised with the proper understanding of authority, they can't even function in life. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, some translations say you shall not kill, but it's important to understand the distinction between killing and murdering. And, and the idea here is murder, not just killing. Because people will take this commandment, they'll take the sixth commandment and they'll say, well, uh, no one should go to war then. Can't go to war. Can't uh, go and defend your country. Shouldn't have capital punishment. Because the Bible says you shouldn't kill. Well, we have to understand the, the framework of and the context of this is that it's speaking of murder. It's speaking of the killing of someone without any justification for it. Just a, a, a random act of violence. Just a, an act of revenge. Just wanting to, to lash out at someone because you're angry at them or you hate them. Certainly God, throughout the Old Testament, allows for killing. And we could get into the, the whole theology of that and why God would even allow that or why God would tell the, the nation of Israel to go and wipe out the Canaanites and all of their children. And, and I think those are things as believers that, that we need to think about and we need to have answers for and that we need to be critically thinking about because people wonder about that. But that's for another Bible study and we'll certainly be getting into all of that as we study through the Old Testament. But we need to understand the distinction between murder and killing. Going to war and defending your country and putting your life on the line for your country is a sacrifice. It's not murder. So we need to understand the distinction. Jesus took it even further than this in the New Testament when He said, look, if you have anger in your heart towards someone, you're guilty of murder. So all of a sudden, all of these self-righteous Pharisees were now indicted as lawbreakers. And so are all of us. Because who among us has not been angry at somebody? And most of us have probably been angry enough at someone that given the right set of circumstances and the right opportunity, we may have murdered them. But thankfully, by God's grace, we're able to process the ramifications and the repercussions of that and, and we're able to gather our thoughts and, and, and not do it. But we've certainly been angry enough at people. Maybe you've even thought about it, but then not you know, brought yourself to it. Well, the anger in your heart, the thought, is, is sin as well. And so you shall not murder. Jesus really ratchets that up in the Beatitudes when He says, look, if you have anger in your heart, you're murdering that person. And the seventh commandment is like that as well. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, adultery is sexual sin committed by someone who is married having sexual relations with someone they're not married to. That's, that's really the, uh, the idea of adultery. And I think obviously that, that all sexual sin uh, could be uh, included here, but specifically God mentions adultery, which is basically the the highest of sexual sin because you've made a commitment to to that person and and now you've broken that commitment. And so I think we can go backwards from there and know that all sexual sin is wrong. But that is that is sort of the height of it because 
not only are you offending God, but you, you've offended another person. You've, you've hurt that person you've made a commitment to. And Jesus again said, indicting us all, because people say, well, hey, I've never done that. I'm, I'm doing okay. And Jesus said, well, if you have lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. And so now every man and probably every woman, I don't know how women think, but I'm pretty sure that he's probably indicted all of us right there. And he just basically said, look, just because you've never had the opportunity doesn't make you innocent. See, and a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of people, uh, given the opportunity, uh, would have done that. And sometimes maybe even someone who uh, is a virgin and, and they're, they're really prideful about that, but maybe they were never given the opportunity. But they're lusting in their heart and they're wishing they could, uh, you know, get with somebody, but they, they don't have any opportunity for whatever reason and they think that they're, they're doing well. Well, no, the Bible says that's, that's sin as well. It, it's, it's just the same. That's how God sees it. So we need to understand that God sees right to our heart. He knows what's going on in our heart. And adultery today is something that is absolutely accepted. And it's okay and it's a part of culture and you know, there's this code among men, you know, hey, you don't talk about it. If you know a guy at work's cheating on his wife, you know, you just keep that that under wraps. You know, that's why when Kobe Bryant ratted out Carl Malone a few years ago, remember that? The Lakers thing and everything was falling apart on the LA Lakers and and Kobe had had the rape allegation, and then he, he went ahead and said, you know, well, Carl Malone's sleeping around on his wife. Well, ever since then, Kobe is blackballed in the NBA because, they, hey, you just don't do that because they're all doing it. Wilt Chamberlain had like a 1,000 women or whatever. Well, he wasn't the only one. Magic Johnson got AIDS for a reason. It's because they sleep with every woman they possibly can. I mean, they're just all over the place. They pick them out. They tell the the assistants on the team, you know, hey, I want that one. They bring them back. They meet them. They go to a hotel, whatever. That's the lifestyle in the NBA. And you don't talk about it. It's accepted. And Kobe broke that. Well, I'm not saying Kobe's a saint by any means, but the fact is is that that isn't how it should be. We shouldn't be accepting that or keeping that as some kind of unwritten rule that, ooh, you just don't talk about that. You know, everybody's doing it, so you just kind of keep it under wraps. shouldn't be that way at all. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, verse 19. You shall not steal. It's another important foundation for human society, establishing the right to personal property. That this is mine, and it doesn't belong to you, and you can't have it. And if you take it from me, that's wrong. That is, that's important. God has clearly entrusted possessions to certain individuals. And other people or other states or entities are not permitted to take that from you. And that's why, you know, people are outraged over this imminent domain. Because it goes against the very fabric of the way God set things up that the government can just come and take your property and give you whatever they feel like it's worth. I think in some sense that would, would go against this command. You shall not steal. But it's not just stealing stuff like going in the store and, and taking stuff that isn't yours and walking out. I mean, that's what we think of when we think of stealing and that's correct. And it, and it starts like super young, just this whole idea that, you know, I want it and I'm going to take it. 
I remember we were in California, and maybe California just brings this out in in people, you know. Just all of a sudden, it just makes you like a criminal. But Caitlin was, I think, three, and we're in a in a Kmart in in L.A. somewhere in Diamond Bar, and we walk out, we get in the car, and she's got like gum, and I go, "Where'd you get that?" Oh, I took it. Well, that isn't yours. I know. Well, we're going to go back in there and you're going to talk to whoever we need to talk to and you're going to tell them that you stole this. So we did that, you know, and she's never done it since. But there, if we hadn't taught her that, if we hadn't, if we just said, ah, it's not a big deal. She's only three and, you know, what, we don't feel like going back in there. It's only 50 cents or whatever. We'll make it up next time. If we had done that, that would teach her that's okay. And it's just a pattern that's built in people's lives. But it's not only stealing in that sense, but we can steal in other ways as well. We can steal from God. God commands us to give to Him, to purpose in our heart what we're going to give to Him and to be faithful with that. And if we don't, we're robbing God. We're stealing from Him. We can rob God by refusing to give Him ourselves for service. God says here, I'm entrusting you with a gift. And then we say, well, I don't really have time or the energy or the desire to use that. It's robbing God. God says, I'm giving you a talent. And yet we only use it for ourselves, for selfish reasons, to make money, to make a name for ourselves. And that's robbing God. God says, look, I've created you to bring me glory. I've created you to bring me glory. That is your purpose. If we're not doing that, we're robbing from God. And so there's a lot of other ways that we can rob from the Lord, that we can rob from the church. How often do people go to church and just simply consume from the church? And they're typically the first to complain, you know, that, oh, nobody talked to me or, or nobody uh, said anything to me or I needed money and nobody gave me any money or on and on and on the list goes. And yet they weren't willing at all to give to the church. And I don't mean just financially. Maybe they weren't able to. I'm talking about just money. I'm just saying anything of their time, of their gifts, but now they expect that the church is just there simply to serve them. And people will come and they'll sit week after week and month after month and year after year and never even give a thought to giving anything back. They just take and they take and then they complain and they complain. And that's robbing. That's stealing. And so... You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a a big one. We can break this commandment in a myriad of ways. Slander, tail-bearing, creating false impressions, uh, silence, flattery. All of these things are false witness. Let's talk about some of these things. Slander. It's It's an invention, a lie that is spread with the intent of doing someone harm. Slander is horrible. It's the worst form of injury that you can do to a person. Because you can hurt somebody physically and at least they'll heal. But if you slander somebody, they may never get their reputation back. It's like people that get their identity stolen. You may never get your credit back. It can take years to get your credit back if you ever get it back. The same is with your reputation. People say something about you and it's not true. And yet it's a wildfire. And now you you spend your whole life trying to repair your reputation, which 
as an aside, don't even bother because you'll just look foolish doing so. You, you just have to, to allow God to restore your reputation in those situations. And it's horrible. Slander is probably the worst thing that can happen to somebody. If you kill somebody, they're dead. You slander somebody, and you ruin their reputation, now they have to live with that. And we need to be very, very careful that we're not slandering people. That we're not saying things about people that we know are not true. Or saying things about people that we're unsure of. We need to get our facts straight. That would be tail-bearing. Repeating a report about a person without careful investigation. Without checking the facts to make sure that's true. Just believing somebody and taking their word for it. And believe me, I've done that. And it's a mistake. There's also inappropriate silence. You hear something about someone and you know it isn't true. But you don't have the courage to correct the person. You don't have the courage to stand up and say, you know what, that isn't true. And that's bearing false witness. Colossians 3, nine says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We need to put away lying. We need to put away gossip and, and, and spreading rumors and slander. That should not be named among us at all. And, you know, in the existence of our church, I, I will have to say that we've had very little of that. And, and I've heard some things and, and you know, and, and it grieves me when I hear it. And, and I've heard things, you know, where people have undermined me and, and things like that, but it's rare. It shouldn't happen at all, but at least in our church, it's rare. But if you are a person who is, is given to that, where you like juicy little nuggets about people, you, you need to be careful. The, the test is, would you say what you're saying if that person were there? And if you can confidently say, yeah, you know what, I, I would, I would say that, then, then go ahead and say what you're going to say. But whatever we say about people, we should be willing to say it to their face. We're all guilty and we all need to repent of that. If we were to, to tape record uh, even the things that we've said about people in this room in the last week, would we want that played? I mean, I, I think that's kind of a, a, a really um, sobering thought, something that we need to think about and, and be careful of. And finally, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. And this is huge. Shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's, it's pretty huge. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. I think that happens a lot, right? See another person's house and, oh man, I really want that. And, you know, you're content with your house until you see somebody who has a better house and you want their house. Or you watch HGTV. I mean, it's harder for us than it was for them. They weren't building the kind of houses that we build now. You know, and they didn't have TV to show you all the cool houses. You think, oh man, I want that, you know. I got to have the heated floor or the little towel heater, you know. All the little gadgets and things that that we're all guilty of wanting it. Nor his field, which is you know basically his his land and his his property and things. And we might apply that with just maybe someone's business because that was their way of life, their field. Maybe we wish we had that person's career, that person's business. I wish I could you know make money the way they do. We shouldn't covet a person's male servant. His female servant, his ox, his donkey, basically be like cars. How often are we coveting other people's cars or cars that drive by? And again, I mean, it's it's just one after the other. When you're watching any television program, you're going to get hammered with car commercial. And you think, oh man, my car's getting old. You know, it's only an 05. 
it's time to get a new one. Right? I'm just as guilty. And they, car companies are very intentional. They, they, and same with computers. You know, they could give you everything right now, but they hold it back. They have to. Because the next year, there it is, you know. You think they just came up with that this year? They always have something that they didn't think about? Of course not. They just aren't going to give you it all at once. So that way you have something you want. They could make computers right now with 10 gigabytes, but they don't because they want you to buy new ones. It's a very simple concept. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, in the thick darkness with a loud voice, and He added no more. I like that. There were ten commandments. He added no more. Kept it simple. These things. This is what I expect from you. This is what I want from you. This is what you need to concentrate on. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone and He gave them to me. So it was, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely... The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet He still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? So you... Go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Well, that's a lie. They already broke one of the commandments right there. They weren't going to do all of this. In fact, it wouldn't be 40 days later that they grow tired of Moses being up on the mountain and they break every one of the commandments as they make a false god and they worship it and they commit adultery with one another as a offering to this God. And it goes on and on. They had good intentions, like Peter. Oh, Lord, I would never do that. They weren't guarding their hearts. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. God is so gracious because He knew that they weren't going to keep these commands. And yet He just he honored what they said. God's so gracious with us. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And if they had listened to God, that would be true. But they didn't listen to God, and the very opposite happened to them. They were judged. Instead of being blessed, they were cursed time and time again. But God was always so gracious to them. And He's so gracious to us. And you know what? We read the Ten Commandments and it's like an indictment. It's like, you know, a murderer standing there and hearing all of the indictments and he knows every one of them is true. And it's just like, okay, you know, whatever you're going to do to me. And, and that's what it's like when we read the Ten Commandments. It's like, yep, I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of this. Oh man, tell me about it. 
And that's when we have to just go to the cross. Because as I said when we started the study tonight, Romans 3.20 tells us that the law cannot justify. There's no redemption. There's no salvation in the law. Only condemnation. We're condemned. The law condemns us. We read it and it's a unanimous decision. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You're dirty and rotten to the core we are. And we, we run headlong in, into the, the grace of God. As Paul said, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our cry tonight. We're sinners. We're filthy, rotten sinners in our the core of our being. And God said, I love you so much. I want to have a relationship with you, but the, the state that you're in right now does not allow for that. And so I'm going to take on human flesh and I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to give you my righteousness and you're going to be holy so that you can relate to me and I can relate to you. And it's beautiful and it's awesome and that's what God has for us. And we worship Him in light of that. And so as the worship team comes up, that's what we want to do. Not condemnation. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned tonight, you guys. We are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. But these are a, a great template for us to say, man, this is how I want to live my life. But when I don't, thank You, Lord, that I have an advocate with the Father. Thank You, Lord, that You sent Your Son to take my place. Thank You, Jesus, that 1 John 1, nine says, if I confess my sin, You're faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's beautiful. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.